Hi, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 5, Episode 14 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we dissected Bayern Munich's imperiled Bundesliga hegemony. We shone the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast spotlight on Spanish football's long-awaited heir to Fernando Torres, and we analysed Salernitana's hopeless predicament at the wrong end of the Serie A table. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe, hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Hopefully you learn a thing or two, or perhaps even three, from this episode. Enjoy. Well, we're laughing, dear listener, because we've recorded this episode in a very unusual order. Barlow had to take a call from none other than the BBC, so we've rearranged the way in which we've done things. But it's great now, Rudy Barlow, to have you with us. How are you? Yeah, not too bad at all, Ali. It's uh, great to be on, great to catch up with yourself and, and Michael in the past and future. It's very Schrodinger's podcast here. But uh, but yeah, sometimes it feels a little bit like Tetris fitting everything into the schedule. So gl- glad it's working out. Yeah, and I think the well, based on the reviews, the listeners seem to appreciate what we do. So it's all it's all worth it. The the podcast gymnastics we routinely perform. Now I think the best place for us to start is in La Liga, and yeah, I think probably Rayo Vallecano have given us plenty of food for thought recently. So Bournemouth fans would probably say they're quite happy if you were to ask them about their form, even if they did have a dreadful start to the campaign that looked as though it might derail things early. But what of their coach, Andoni Ayrola's previous club, Rayo Vallecano? Former Elche and Almeria coach Francisco did not last the season at Vallecas, but were it not for Brexit, he may well still be in a job. So, Barlow, how are Rayo getting on? And tell us what Francisco did or didn't do to get the sack. Yeah, there's still seven, eight points clear of the relegation zone, so Rayo aren't in immediate danger, but there's no doubt that form-wise they are uh, in a bit of a, a dry spell, to say the very least. It's just one win in their last 16 matches, 17 if you count Inigo Perez's debut, who is the new manager in charge at Vallecas. And and I have to say, with all due respect to Francisco, who I don't think is necessarily a bad manager, but it was a very predictable spell, um, he came in, he didn't really change too much and you sort of heard the players quite pleased with the fact that he was adjusting a, the odd thing here, he was tweaking the odd thing there, but wasn't really trying to change too much of Iraola's method and and that kind of worked for about three, four months and they were doing pretty well, they were up towards those European places near that top half of the table 
early on and then yeah this run this run of just one win one win that came in a very weird game where Hatafe from three four years ago were banned for for one game from their own stadium so it was played at the Metropolitano with a kind of smattering of Hatafe and Rio fans right in the early early days of January so yeah it's been a, a barren barren time for for the Rio fans and and yeah as soon as those kind of that initial form kind of fell off as soon as the Iraola effects started to kind of lead the, leave their bloodstream so to speak Francisco didn't really have the answers to kind of change it up and I think he went probably more conservative he went for a, a kind of side that has been successful for him in the past with Elche um, for a season with Almeria for a season two but never really kind of fit with with how I uh how I saw this Rio side, especially under Raula. And I, part of me did wonder, because uh, the sporting director, David Corbeño, has a fantastic record in terms of signings. Part of me wondered if he was playing 3D chess and Francisco was just the guy after the guy. <laughs> because you you know that you don't want to be Unai Emery, you want to be Mikel Arteta when he comes in. Um, and Diego Perez has got that uh, Arteta role in terms of being the second person after the kind of era defining in this case for Rio two three excellent seasons under Iraola, um, era defining manager, and it's a curious story because he was due to become uh, Iraola's assistant at Bournemouth, but he didn't get given a work permit due to kind of the Brexit rules. Obviously, five six years ago, this wouldn't have been a problem for Perez, but. Uh, he was deemed that he wouldn't contribute enough to the development of coaching and football in the UK. So Inigo Perez was kind of left uh, as, as a loose end without a job. And I think were he not available to kind of come in and, and reinforce what Iraola did, uh, then I, I could see Francisco still being in a job. Because if you sack a manager at this stage of the season, it's very hard to bring someone in immediately. It's very hard to bring someone in that will fit, that doesn't need too much time to adapt. So... Um, especially kind of at that end of the table, it's a bit different if you're uh, if you're able to poach somebody that's doing well, um, whereas Rio probably aren't. And uh, and yeah, he's inexperienced. It has to be said, he's former Athletic Club midfielder. That's where he would have probably spent most of his time with Iraola. He played for Osasuna as well. A bit of a, a kind of journeyman around the Basque country in the north of Spain for the most part of his career. A, a reasonably kind of solid, reliable central midfielder. He's just thirty six years old. Last season was his first in coaching as Iraola's assistant, um, and and yeah, he's been he, he retired just before that. So so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he does. He started off very well. He started off with a win over Real Madrid, um, uh, sorry, a draw with Real Madrid, one one at home, very hard fought. But but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he returns this Rayo to what they were doing under Iraola because, as I say, one of the things that really defined them was their ambition, the way that they would take the game to uh to those bigger sides to those sides that perhaps were a bit higher up on the table and and you've got some talented players there that aren't really and admittedly this was true under Raula for Raul de Tomas and Sergio Camello um but those two players have struggled a lot in front of goal and Rayo have struggled for goals as a result Jorge de Frutos is a player that I love I think he's very well liked in Spain as well um, we've spoken about him before when he was at Levante, but he was brought in in the summer for about six, seven million as well. So that's that's a reasonably sized signing for Rayo. Um, and he's not been able to get into the team. Francisco's not found a method to get into, into the team. And equally, Aridane, the, the central defender who came in for Osasuna, very experienced, very solid during his time at Osasuna, but seems to be playing a lot now and, and has, they've struggled for answers outside of him. So um, it, it felt like 
under Francisco in those last two, three months, you couldn't really rely on an identity for Rayo. And that did get them a draw against Real Madrid at the Bernabeu, one of the few teams to do so. But uh, but yeah, definitely this Rayo side, I think that's what they'll be looking for with Perez. Um, they'll be looking for somebody to kind of bring back that kind of ambitious pressing football, a very vertical style that worked so well under Raul because it's so different in Spain and because not that many teams counter-attack in the way they do. And granted, they're missing some of the pieces that they had that made that side uh, so good under Raul. But, but yeah, it'll be, it'll be a good one to watch and I'll be watching it from close quarters at Vallecas. Since the departure of Fernando Torres and David Villa, it's felt like Spain have been missing a forward to complement a gloriously talented midfield. The fact you can still argue about Alvaro Morata suggests it's not a settled debate. And yet, Atletico Madrid might not only have signed Morata's eventual replacement, but Spain's future number nine. Tell us more about Samu Omarodion, Barlow. Yeah, he's a fascinating player. I think we maybe touched on him just at the start of the season when Aleti signed him um, after just 90 minutes in senior football. He pl- he made his debut against Atleti. He scored in that game. He was very troublesome for the Atleti defence. Um, and, and yeah, a week later, they signed him. They paid his release clause at Granada and he was loaned out to Alaves. First, I do just want to hi- highlight very quickly Alaves is how well they're doing this season. They're in 11th place um, as it stands and very, very impressive season because they have the lowest budget in La Liga along with Las Palmas. The two of them are about 10 million separated in terms of what they can spend. Um, and in terms of resources, Luis Garcia Plaza is getting so much out of them. John Goridi, who was kind of a, a kind of a very kind of mediocre average midfielder, just did his job, was very good at Real Sociedad, has come in and looks like a real uh, problem for other sides and you look at the way that Barcelona struggled against them, Real Madrid um, the two of them both eventually won out but both of them really struggled against them especially at Mendy Sorotha um, and they brought in very little and Omar Odion is the one that stands out in terms of kind of quality and in terms of uh, star quality he, he is the defining kind of leading the line for this side and and yeah he's 6'4", he's got presence he's got pace, he's got power he's still very raw but he's got a very good return, bearing in mind that this is his first season in kind of senior football and he really has burst onto the scene. He's got uh, nine goals and an assist so far. Uh, he hasn't been starting all of their games either. Kike Garcia was was up there up top for some of the earlier stages of the season and he's averaging kind of about 150 minutes per goal contribution. So that's better than the goal every two games. And and yeah, it's, it's incredible just how quick his rise has been one of the things that kind of defines him for me is that he always gets a chance. Defenders are, for the most part, unable to handle him. Even the kind of stronger, faster ones that you expect at the top end of the table, your Ronald Araujos, um, your Eder Militao's, your Antonio Rudiger's, they've not necessarily dealt with him very well. Militao, obviously not because he's been injured all season, but that type of defender. And uh, his conversion rate is a little bit of an issue. That is my one fear about him is that he ends up being Salomon Rondon, who another player who bursts onto the scene very young and, and big, powerful, pacey, um, a hassle for defenders and, and just never quite had that extra Midas touch in front of goal. But if we're talking about pure potential and pure talent, you know, Omar Odian has the attributes to really become something that Spain have struggled for in recent times since David Villa, since Fernando Torres. They've not had that clinical number nine. And the fact that Murata is there, and there's still a debate about him 
yeah tells us that he's not necessarily the the be all and end all answer to that question but Omarodian certainly has the potential to be and if he can continue these uh continue the way he's playing a bit essentially and put away a few more of these chances then then yeah we're talking about something that could be a real prodigy both for Atleti and Spain um and and yeah that finishing is my one doubt about him as well as with Alaves he does have a lot of space to run into um, and that's where he's best. That's where he can threaten most. That's where he can make defenders most uncomfortable. So when he goes to Atleti and he has those defences, a few more of them will be sat deep. A few more of them will ask different things of him. But but even in those games where Alaves have been pushing for kind of equalisers, where they've been kind of, yeah, throwing balls into the box, he's so big, he's so powerful. And his movement's good. So he does seem to get on the end of these chances. And and I've seen a lot of that in Vittoria Gastege. So, so yeah, it has to be said, he's... He's just kind of broken into the news this week, actually, because Atleti are talking about upping his release clause. It's about 80 to 100 million just now. Personally, don't think they need to do that just yet. But uh, but yeah, certainly he, he's one to keep an eye on for, for the future. Absolutely, Barlow. Yeah, remember the name Samu Omarodi on it. It did take me a while to, to yeah, uh, just perfect, to perfect the pronunciation of his name. But Samu Omarodion. Now that I can say it, I'm going to say it a lot because it is a fantastic name <laughs> and he sounds like a fantastic player. Well, we are going to draw our analysis of Spanish football to a close. There, we're going to turn our attention now to Germany, where Bayern Munich are having just a little bit of difficulty. We'll be right back. In Germany, Bayern Munich's traditionally ironclad grip on the Bundesliga's top spot over the last decade or so has looked increasingly weakened this season. And that is, of course, down in no small part to the brilliance of Xabi Alonso's Bayer Leverkusen, who sit just eight points clear at the top of the table with 12 games to go. But looking southeast from North Rhine-Westphalia to Bavaria, it's clear that not all is well at the Allianz Arena. So, taking that customary road to nowhere step back, how might we explain Bayern's struggles so far this season? And looking ahead, how might we rate their chances of turning things around and winning a 12th consecutive league title? Ali, take it away. Yeah, Barlow, I think a lot of the conversation here is focused on Harry Kane and his seemingly doomed quest for <laughs> silverware. And now, clearly that angle is... An interesting angle, and and we can't look at Bayern Munich without looking at the thirty-year-olds. But the narrative does run a lot deeper than simply another trophyless season, albeit in a different country, for Harry Kane. Now, quite simply, Barlow, this season is shaping up to be an almost entirely unmitigated disaster for Bayern. So, if we look at the season on the whole, or the season on the whole to date. They lost the Super Cup back in August in a game that would ultimately prove to be a harbinger of further struggles. They were then dumped rather unceremoniously out of the DFB Pokal in the second round by third-tier Saarbrücken at the start of November. They're also teetering on the brink of a damaging early Champions League exit, having deservedly lost 1-0 against Lazio in the first leg of their round of 16 tie and yeah as you say with 12 games to go they trail Leverkusen by five points in the league so on just about all fronts they have underperformed and are continuing to underperform there is of course a backdrop 
to the club struggles this season and when we consider this backdrop we perhaps shouldn't be too surprised by the extent to which Bayern have struggled this season the current campaign does increasingly feel like the culmination of what could arguably be described as I suppose a period of stagnation maybe even a period of slight regression so so just looking at, at that backdrop Barlow while Bayern have totally dominated the league over the last decade or so I think over the last few campaigns we have seen some cracks starting to appear so Bayern were never really fully convincing under Niko Kovac when he was in charge in 2018 and 2019 and then last spring the club of course sacked Julian Nagelsmann you had the then sporting director Hassan Salihamisic who himself would go on to be relieved of his duties a couple of months later but he was still in post at the time of Nagelsmann's sacking. And at that time, Hassan Salihamishits spoke about a worrying lack of drive, mentality, aggression and power. Now, to me, all of that seems to go to the very culture of a dressing room, to the very fabric, I suppose, of a playing squad. And so to address those concerns, you would think a club would want to conduct, a, I suppose, a, a root and branch review and think really strategically about the recruitment of the next person in charge. And yet the appointment of Thomas Tuchel at such a crucial point in the season did feel a little bit rushed, perhaps even a, a knee-jerk reaction. In any event, it was definitely a decision made with haste. And I think, Burrow, there was probably this fear within the club that if they didn't offer the job to Tuchel there and then, they would miss out on him and they would, would have to look elsewhere. If they had kept Nagelsmann in post until the end of the season, let's face it, they probably would still have won the league and they would probably have given themselves longer to craft a comprehensive succession plan geared towards the longer term. Now, Tuchel did come in and ultimately do just about enough to guide Bayern to yet another league title, but he did also oversee those quarter-final exits in the DFB Pokal and in the Champions League. So it would be, I think, remiss of us to label the decision to appoint Tuchel as vindicated in, in any way. Quite tellingly, Tuchel is averaging 2.07 points per game. Now, only two permanent coaches can boast a worse record than that at Bayern in the 21st century. Those two coaches being a certain Van Hal, who averaged 2.03 points per game, and none other than Jurgen Klinsmann, who picked up a measly 1.95 points per game. So you do, just as an aside, I suppose, you do start to wonder if we should maybe be probing Tuchel's reputation as one of the best coaches in Europe. I don't think that reputation is as strong as it once was, but I think there is still a perception of Tuchel as one of the best, maybe not one of the very best, but certainly one of that group of managers just below the very best. And yeah, I suppose let's not forget that he he won the world's best club coach award back in 2021 after he'd won the Champions League with Chelsea earlier in the year but in all honesty it didn't really work out for him at PSG and while he did enjoy Club World Cup and that Champions League success at Chelsea I don't think his time at Stamford Bridge latterly anyway was fully convincing either anyway over the last week and a half or so Bayern had two huge games and they've lost both of those. So if you look firstly at the Leverkusen game, I think what will be most alarming for Bayern is the manner of their defeat. They were totally outclassed and Tuchel was totally outcoached. So 
quite remarkably, they actually managed just a single shot on target against Leverkusen. The last time they had so few in a competitive game anyway was April 2022 in a 3-1 defeat against Mainz. Now, Tuchel almost always sets Bayern up in a 4-2-3-1 formation, but for the Leverkusen game, he decided to go with a sort of an experimental 3-4-3, and, and the idea behind that, the thinking behind that, Barlow, was that this would mirror Leverkusen's setup. it would nullify the threat posed by Leverkusen's wing-backs, but the brilliant Xabi Alonso shifted away from his usual system and its reliance on wing-backs and opted instead for, I suppose, a hybrid back four, back five, with the more defensively-minded Bayern-Loney Josip Stanisic playing in Jeremy Fringpong's place. And that approach clearly paid off. Leverkusen were thoroughly deserved winners in the end. As an aside, Barlow Raphael Honigstein has written a great piece on where that game was won and lost. So if our listeners are looking for some further reading on that quite brilliant game, do go and check that article out. Bayern then, of course, had an immediate chance to get back on track with their trip to Rome to take on Lazio in the Champions League, but their performance in that encounter did little to quell the gathering disquiet. So Tuchel, perhaps unsurprisingly, ditched the 3-4-3, bearing in mind that it was probably purely used to try and combat Leverkusen, Leverkusen strengths. But anyway, he went back to the 4-2-3-1 formation for the Lazio game. He started Joshua Kimish, he started Thomas Muller, and based on the starting lineup, anyway, there was an air of Bayern being back in business. But actually, out on the pitch over 90 minutes or so at the Stadio Olimpico, Bayern were absolutely dreadful. There was no drive, no aggression, no real threat, nothing at all, Barlow, to make Lazio's evening uncomfortable. And the, the Guardian's uh, Football Daily newsletter said that it was a performance that could scarcely have been more pedestrian if it was walking around Norwich City Centre, which I did enjoy. <laughs> anyway, quite simply, it was a terrible performance from Bayern Munich. With those two games in mind, I actually wasn't too shocked at all when on Sunday I checked my phone after leaving the cinema. I'd been seeing The the Holdovers, which is an excellent film. Do go and check that out if you've not already seen it. But anyway, when I checked my phone after leaving the cinema, I wasn't too shocked at all to see that Bayern had lost 3-2 away to mid-table Bochum. And I think, yeah, that in itself tells us a lot about where Bayern are as a club right now. Thinking about Bayern's struggles more generally, I think there are several factors explaining their current predicament. There is a feeling that there is more of a focus on the individual than on the team as a collective whole. And so when individuals don't turn up and produce the required moments of magic, you, you invariably fall short. And I think as well with Joshua Kimish and Thomas Muller, not guaranteed starters every week, what you also arguably have is a leadership void of sorts. So yes, Harry Kane is a leader, but German isn't his first language. And there's only so much the colossal Manuel Neuer can do in terms of galvanising and leading his teammates from his end of the pitch. For a while now as well, Bayern's activity in the transfer market has been quite questionable. And what we are seeing on the pitch now is probably a byproduct of that flawed Recruitment, the club, of course, spent a lot of money on Harry Kane and Kane himself hasn't done too much wrong. He scored 25 league goals already. But for me, Paolo, if you're bringing in players like Kane, you're not really bringing them in to score two or three goals against, and, and I say this with all due respect, some of the smaller teams in the league. What you're bringing them in for is you're bringing them in to influence the big games, to produce 
big season-defining moments. Now, the game against Leverkusen on match day 21 was arguably the biggest game of the season, a game for which Bayern really needed Kane to step up and deliver, but that just did not happen. So Kane managed just 17 touches all game and none of those were in the opposition's penalty box. And I suppose on, on the one hand, you could absolutely say he was starred of service and that's a reflection on, on the wider team. But on the other hand, I still think it's fair to suggest that Kane himself could have done more to get himself and his team into the game. On top of all that, Bayern are missing the excellent Kingsley Coman through injury and several players, including Jamal Musiala, have slightly struggled to find their groove after the winter break. Looking ahead, I do think this could well be the season in which Bayern's incredible run of league titles come to an end. Previously, when they've wobbled, the teams around them haven't been good enough. Last season, for example, Dortmund were tantalisingly close to shattering Bayern's hegemony and still couldn't do it, fluffing their lines on the final day. Over the last few years, when Bayern have at times looked vulnerable, there to be got at, nobody has stepped up and been good enough to exploit those shortcomings. The difference this time around is that in the form of Xabi Alonso's high-flying Bayer Leverkusen, we would appear to have the real deal. A team full of confidence and playing in a way that suggests, yeah, they, they can indeed go the distance. If Leverkusen continue to go from strength to strength and if Bayern continue to toil, yeah, we will almost certainly be seeing a team other than the Bavarians win the Bundesliga for the first time since 2012. And on that rather optimistic note, I think we will draw this section of the podcast to a close. We will turn our attention now to Italy. Michael Jones is going to tell us all about the latest goings-on in Serie A. We'll be right back. Now, if Thomas Tuchel is looking for a brief resurgence of form to help temporarily rectify some of the glaring issues at Bayern, he may want to seek advice from his adversary and fellow ex-Chelsea manager Maurizio Sarri. There is no escaping the fact that Lazio's first leg victory over Bayern will live long in the memory of many, and quite rightly so. But this has been undermined by recent league defeats against top four rivals that have left the club's Champions League hopes beyond this season in real jeopardy. What's not working for Sarri and Rome, Michael, and is it fixable? Yeah, I think a lot of things aren't working for Sarri and Rome. And a short answer before kind of giving the reasons why is... The, the kind of long-term project, Sarri and Lazio, seemed a really good match when he first got that job um, a year, just over a year and a half ago now. But yeah, in short, I can't see this lasting beyond this season. I think what this victory over Bayern Munich does provide, regardless of what happens in the second leg, is a real defining night where Lazio was sort of very central on the European stage when it's been the city rivals who have been on that European stage more so over the past few years and as you mentioned you know Lazio did do some things really well in that win against Bayern Munich but I was really really sceptical before that game 
versus Bayern Munich. On the last episode, I mentioned we were talking about Atalanta and Atalanta absolutely thumped them 3-1. Could have been a lot more, though. And, you know, two teams who looked absolutely world apart despite the league positions at the time not being that far apart. They've only got further apart now following this 2-1 defeat to Bologna at the weekend. But what was so damaging about this defeat, which really sums up what Lazio are like at the moment as well, is that Lazio did actually have some momentum from the Bayern Munich game and they were able to trans or they were able to carry that into this game versus Bologna. They took the lead through Gustav Isaacson, a really nice killed finish in the first half. Immobile scored a goal which was marginally offside. They also had chances through Isaacson as well and through Immobile to score again. And the manner in which they let the game go at the first end of the first half, they conceded a really bad goal when they were trying to play out of the back and Luis Alberto was dispossessed on the edge of his end. Well, he wasn't dispossessed, he passed the ball back to Providel, the goalkeeper, but he fired it at him under not too much pressure from Bologna and then the goalkeeper fired it straight into the path of a Bologna player and Elizazzi ended up scoring his first goal for Bologna before Joshua Zerkse scored a splendid winner but one that was also from a Lazio perspective, some really poor defending where he was able to just ghost into the onto the penalty spot towards the end of the game. And Bologna being one of Lazio's top four rivals this season, that was a really damaging defeat in a week that should have been one that was very positive for them. But yeah, I think in terms of what hasn't worked, I mean, obviously consistency has been a massive factor for Lazio. I think the additions that Maurizio Sarri has tried to make, I think, on paper have generally looked um, quite impressive when you've looked at the signings that he's made. But I think what he's really struggled to do is consistently have them performing. I think Deji Kamada, Matteo Ganduzzi, we spoke at the start of the season about Nico Ravella. These are players I was really excited to see how they would fare under Sarri Ball and if he was able to resurrect what he did at Napoli, Tati Castellanos as well, who arrived from Girona. I'm sure he's the Argentine strikers wishing he was still there right now as well, although maybe not after the last couple of weeks, but still things are much more rosy than they are here in Rome at the moment. Yet he's kind of consistently had to continually rely on these older players who are now reaching the twilight of their careers in Chiro Mobile, Felipe Anderson, Luis Alberto. And I just don't think that this is as well a functioning team for them also, where they're able to be surrounded by the players or the system that they used to have under Simone and Zaghi, which is probably much more suited, a much more fluid counter-attacking system that worked more for them than what Sarri's trying to implement. And it just begs the question whether these players have been good enough to do that. And with the club being quite stringently, stringently managed by Claudio Latito, the chairman, and with the impact of um, the growth decree or the absence of it coming into Italian football this year as well, it really begs the question how much further Lazio can go with Sarri and whether they will have to look at a domestic coach and look to build from there. I think I'd just end up by saying that there was a real, really nice touching tribute in this match where we saw Motta and Sarri come up against each other, two sort of highly esteemed coaches in Italian football and they paid tribute to Sinisa Mihanovic before the match as his birthday would have been on Tuesday and his death just over a year ago now um, is definitely remembered by two teams who he had that really close 
attachment to as well. But yeah, I mean, they weren't helped by a number of injuries. I think that's safe to say as well. And suspensions, Alessio Romagnoli's constantly had to move the defence. Ron Patrick got injured in the game. Nicola Casale had to come in. But I think Sorry has just struggled to find a winning formula ultimately and do it by implementing his style of football. And despite urging the players to be pragmatic at times, they've just struggled to achieve that. And knowing after that first goal against Bologna really demonstrated that. So I, I think by Munich slump, I, maybe it's not, but I, I don't think it's going to last as long as Lazio's might do. But I, I would expect by Munich to get past them in the second leg. But for the few weeks, Lazio at least have that to hold on to. They've got some massive games. I think they've got Milan on the horizon as well. So it's going to be a really season defining few games for them. And their recent record in big games, bar that Bayern match, hasn't been fantastic. Well, staying in Rome, there is a fascinating talent emerging going by the name of Dean Huysen, the six foot five, 18 year old Dutchman, raised eyebrows when he made the January transfer from Juventus to Roma on loan. And the intrigue has only continued to grow following a run of stellar performances, which has seen the player star in both defence and midfield. Tell us more about Huysen and why is it? not only European clubs who will be fighting over his future, Michael? Yeah, well, I didn't know the extent to this when I mentioned Hoysen to you earlier in the week, Ali, when we were going to discuss him. But yeah, his national team future is also subject to scrutiny now. Only today, in fact, Master reported that Hoysen, who grew up in Spain, grew up in the academy of Malaga before rejecting Real Madrid for Juventus, I think at the age of 16, in 2021 he's played all his youth international career through netherlands but now spain uh, apparently looking at him and he's certainly being considered and we'll get on to that a little bit more but this is a hugely hugely exciting player and i think he was one of the players he was one of the last really nice acts that Mourinho had at Roma was the introduction of Hoyson. He was the one who signed him. We were very positive about him when he joined you and trusted him. He gave him the chance to go straight into that starting lineup. But if his first team performances were reflective of anything that they saw on the training ground, I think many managers would, would find it difficult not to implement him. Daniele De Rossi has kept up that faith and like you mentioned there, he's given him the trust to go in midfield. He scored an absolutely fantastic goal in Roma's 3-0 victory over Frosinone and Roma have overnight become a much more exciting team to watch, not only because they're playing more open attacking football, but we've seen the arrival of Tommaso Bandanzi from Empoli and Hoysen playing a starring role in this game as well. And we've seen some really good young players um, start at Roma at the moment, but Hoysen scored a fantastic goal where he glided past a player from the halfway line midway through into the Frosinone half before cutting in and curling it in on his right foot. So effortlessly didn't need probably the least amount of power you would need for a finish from that distance. And the keeper's hyper placement was just so perfect. And he seemed so confident in going for that strike. I know you said that he's called um, Dean Hoysen, which is a great name. Dean, obviously, for a Dutchman. His middle name is Donny, which I feel like is a bit of an equilibrium there in terms of having a Dutch sounding name and yeah, albeit not very Spanish, but he moved there at the age of five. He grew up there and then was a part of the Juventus next gen. He's played alongside the last Matthias Sula, Federico Gatti, Kenan Yildiz, those latter two have both broke, been a part of Juventus' team this season and in Yildiz' case more in the last month or two. So he's been a part of a really impressive Juventus youth project and 
what may look like the future of this Juventus team. And it's very unclear what the situation will be between his future at club level as well. I'm sure other teams will be looking at him. I don't believe Roma have an obligation to buy because Juventus reportedly, according to reports in Italy, have doubled the asking price from 15 million euros to 30 million euros already. But I feel like it's almost looking at flights on Skyscanner deciding when to click purchase for that flight because ultimately Hoyson's value is only going to go up. There's no amount of cookies or anything that's going to get that value back down. You know, this value is staying high on a player that's hugely talented. He reminds me quite a lot of how he described Giorgio Scalvini when he broke through at Atalanta last season, although first impressions give me the idea that he's slightly more comfortable in defence and maybe even a bit better going forwards, which would naturally point to a better all-round player. But the initial signs for an 18-year-old have been absolutely fantastic. And he looks like he's got a bit of attitude too, not by his Cristiano Ronaldo Sue celebration against Brozinone, but the fact that he actually shushed all the fans after they were whistling him after he turned down the chance to join them and Sula on loan this month, which Eusebio de Francesco, the manager and former Roman manager, said he wanted to slap him on the face after that as well, but refrain because he's young, which I think we're all, that would probably be another topic of discussion on the podcast had he decided to do that. But yeah, I think big focus on Hoyson won't just be starting to see that international or European interest uh, developing him from a club perspective. I don't think it'll be too long before Premier League clubs and some of the powerhouses around Europe will be linked. Those with probably more finances or money to spend in Italian clubs who will have to be paying very close attention, especially Juventus to financial fair play and having to sell off academy products for that pure profit. Um, but yeah, with Euros coming up as well, Spain, although you probably said they're a better international team than Netherlands, Netherlands have always had a surplus of defenders and with Botman and Delipt you know, two younger examples there at the moment. There's probably a bit of a cue for him to emerge there at the moment. So whether there's a better route for him playing for Spain than Netherlands strangely at the moment will be a really interesting one to follow. But what that report from Marcel does say at the very least is that he is starting to generate that interest um, far away from Italy as well. Interesting stuff, Michael. Yeah, do enjoy hearing about you on the latest Young players coming through in Serie A, uh, yeah, latest players emerging. So, yeah, I think we'll definitely be following Hoysen's progress and, yeah, it will be interesting to see which national team he does go on to represent. Okay, last but not least, it's Arvidertsi for Filippo Inzaghi, who has become bottom of the table, Salernitana's second sacking of the season, lasting just over four months in charge. His replacement is former Leighton Orient boss Fabio Liverani, who averaged an alarmingly low win percentage of just 26% across his last two jobs. Eight points from safety at the foot of the table. E Granata are, however, not unfamiliar with survival miracles, having quite heroically salvaged their top flight status back in 2022 after looking similarly down and out. So, Michael, is there any belief that they could repeat history? No, absolutely not. I, I'm really not confident that they're going to be able to do this. I mean, yeah, not so super people at Salernitana. He had 16 games there. 
He only won two of them, drew four, lost ten, and his points per match. In fairness to him, this was his worst points per match in his history, not 0.72. I think his next best was when he had Bologna about five years ago, which was an ill-fated spell where he was really sort of thrust into Serie A management, but was sacked in the January of the 18-19 season. But yeah, he's just not been able to get a tune out of his players. I think he's walked into an exceptionally difficult job. I think if you look at sort of the sort of the squads that Paolo Souza, his predecessor, had left pre-successors with, they'd never particularly been ones in a healthy shape or balance. I think his managerial um, sort of timeline is much shorter now than you could probably say for Inzaghi, who I don't think has done himself the world of damage in this role, despite only managing two wins because of the circumstances that he's been in. I mean, Inzaghi did try to offer his resignation twice. Um, one of the chairmen in December said that he didn't want Inzaghi uh, appointed. So then Inzaghi offered his resignation only for the president to reject it. And then that was rejected again, only for um, them, him to be sacked following a damaging 3-1 defeat to Empoli. But coincidentally, that defeat versus Empoli was actually one of their joint worst defeats in his time as manager. And despite losing a number of games as manager, he um, he actually did only lose, he didn't lose any by more than three. Whereas in the immediate aftermath with Leverani, they lost 4-0 to Inter Milan. So Obviously, Inter Milan are a bit of an anomaly in Serie A this season. But I think it goes to show that Inzaghi's work wasn't all in vain. But Salernitana's hopes that staying up this season might be. And I think it's just gone wrong for so many reasons. We mentioned back in September or October, the Sargas running Bill Idea. He was certainly their star striker. He was linked with a move to Wolves, which fell through. And Wolves pursued it only very late on, to, much to the annoyance of Salernitana, uh, to which... They said they'd never negotiate with us again. Um, but given the kind of performances from other players, aside from Deer, this season might not be the worst thing. And yeah, I think since then, that, so Deer's not had a consistent season in the slightest, and he was very much a talisman for them last season. I think they really struggled when they lost us in the Koulibaly during um, January for the AFCON. And it's just been a really difficult time for the team bottom. And Liverani has had periods of success, it should be said. He was actually the man who led Lecce back to the top flight with successive promotions from Serie C. And obviously, we now know that she's an emerging team again in Serie A, and he can be thanked for a lot of that kind of re-emergence in Italian football. If you look at some of his jobs, aside from that, Leverani has really struggled in terms of how he's gone on um, during his time across Italy and I think he did actually play with Inzaghi back in the early noughties but yeah since then he managed Cagliari and he was actually given the Cagliari job and trusted to take them on to get them back into Serie A and he was a man sacked for Claudio Ranieri who we discussed last week he had Cagliari in 14 plus season in Serie B despite having one of the biggest wage budgets and transfer budgets in the league so yeah very little optimism from me um Salernitana relied on Davide Nicola last time. They won't be able to get him as it stands because he's now working at his Magic Empoli where he's led them on a six-game and beat and run, including that win over Salernitana. So, yeah, very much doom and gloom for the team in Salerno. And I said, it's always been good to have that increased presence in Southern Italy. 
back in Serie A and they'll be a big loss to the division because they do provide some entertaining games. They, they fought Juventus to a very close 2-1 defeat only last month, but ultimately they've just not been able to convert those few games where they have had decent-ish performances into any kind of shape or result. So yeah, a number of points off safety and I, I don't have any optimism for them really going forwards this season at least. Yeah, gloomy times indeed for Salernitana. Well, I think we will draw the episode to a close there. I will thank you, Michael Jones, as always. I will thank you, Rudy Barlow, as always, as well. And I will say a huge thank you, as always, to you, dear listener. We will be back in a fortnight's time. Until then, do stay safe, do stay well. Goodbye.